from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, it's springtime for connecting with Walt and our loyal Diz Mouseketeers. What have you been up to since the last time we all got together in January? Well, I've been uh, extremely busy up to until this point in time. And literally in the last three seconds, I just started singing Springtime for Hitler in Germany after that <laughs> intro there. You know that that's what I had in my head when I um, wrote that. Perfect. I, I'm glad that it worked out that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's just been uh, just been working away like always, trying to uh, bring Disney to everyone who's not here. <laughs> Same with you. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, and I've been listening to the Daily Fix and the various videos that have gone up. I really am enjoying how um, the daily videos from the different parks. Oh, that you're all doing out there. Yeah, no, we're uh, we've definitely had a lot of changes since the last round of these shows that went out, and mm-hmm. yeah, the daily fix is consuming quite a bit of our time, and uh, being in the parks multiple days of the week, being forced into them. How horrible. I know, right? It's it's just, well, it's tough on days whenever it's like, oh, I I would really love to go to, I'd love to go to Epcot today and then find out, uh, no, this is my my Animal Kingdom day. Oh, well. Animal Kingdom is my favorite park. I really enjoyed watching the gorillas and the little baby gorillas playing that that you recorded. Oh, yeah, that. Periscope, that was great. That day that JL and I were there, I I swear, we were were in there even longer than we periscoped. So there (laughs) there have been lots of uh, positive benefits of everything that we're doing. And I just hope that everyone out there is uh, enjoying every bit of it. So we love doing it. Uh, Well, it's great because it lets us be at the parks when we can't be there. Yes, yes. Um, And right now the weather has been outstandingly wonderful. We always talk about the weather in here, so I feel like I'm obligated (laughs) to bring it up. But it's been nice. So there hasn't been a lot of like the people being like, uh, you know, it's at least it's raining there. But I'd rather it be raining at Disney than anywhere else. Uh, But you know, it's it's just been beautiful. So I know there's a lot of jealous people uh, out yeah. here lately. But no, well, come down here, visit us. <laughs> we are, we are delighted that it's raining. Uh, unfortunately, it's raining a little hard in some places, and we have flood warnings in yeah. some of our areas up here in Northern California. But um, everyone knows how much California needs water. Oh yeah, uh, so, but, j- and then in our poor kingdom, of course, they're speaking of water. They're draining the rivers of America. In anticipation of, the, uh, you know, uh, diverting the river and making it what is it twenty four percent smaller? Yeah, no. But but it sounds like they're going to be doing some interesting things. It looks, from what I understand, they've gone back to some of Mark Davis's artwork for the old Mind Train through Nature's Wonderland, and looking at some of the audio animatronics that were in that attraction. So we're thinking they're going to start adding that in along the rivers of America when it reopens. Yeah, no. It would be wonderful. And even if it doesn't, uh, while those construction walls are up and they have those beautiful posters hanging, that, that's mm-hmm. good enough. Yeah. And, and the train that, that looks the con- con- concept art is going to run on a beautiful trestle right along yeah. the edge of the river. So it's pretty, but it's also disappointing in a way. But, yeah, I'm just glad. Course. I'm just glad I was out there that one last time to uh, get to experience it. I know you you went too after we were done with our recordings the last round. You were able to take a a quick trip down yeah. and say goodbye to everything. 
And and um, yeah, and of course they're breaking Earth on um, the Star Wars expansion in April. Yeah, out here, and then of course uh, our Harry Potter land is opening at Universal. Very excited about that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm hoping that uh, whenever we are, I don't I don't well, I'm not sure if we did we ever announce that we are going to be out in California. That's why I've been avoiding it. <laughs> Breaking it up. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I. <laughs> well, either way, I have time to edit this if we didn't. But uh, no, so I, I hope that uh, next time I'm out in California that I will have uh, time to go see it, hopefully with you as well. I, that would be great. I yeah. actually got sorted. I went on to, um, is it Pottermore? Yes. And I got sorted. I'm in Ravenclaw. That is actually very fitting for you. Oh, yeah. thank you. No, it's. Uh, have you gone through the sorting? I have, I have. So I am exactly what most people would guess that I am. I am. Slytherin. I am Slytherin. <laughs> so it's. That's. Funny. I like to think it's not for the nastiness that is uh, within me, but more for the uh, the cunning side of oh, myself. That's what so, I was thinking. The cleverness. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, we want to thank everyone for the kind and generous praise you've shared with us since Connecting with Walt first aired. Um, Craig and I truly appreciate how you've made us a part of your Disney family. And we take that trust very seriously in our preparation for all the shows you know, in the Dis Unplugged podcast network. And we also try to have a surprise or two in each monthly season of Connecting with Walt. And this month is no exception. Um, we're introducing a new series within Connecting with Walt called Disney Neverland. And this series will focus on attractions, lands, films that were conceived, designed, but never built. And what is unique about this series is that it's going to be the first one with segments jumping back and forth between Connecting with Walt and the Diz Unplugged Disney podcast, since some lands and attractions never built will be specifically for a particular park, or may include multiple parks in North America and internationally. So I think that's very exciting. We're, we're kicking off a new series within the series. Oh, it's absolutely exciting. And uh, some of the information we're, we're going to be covering within it is the most fascinating to, I, I know myself and definitely a lot of people out there it's it's one of those great things that uh it's fun opening up a new disney book and finding that like that one glimpse that you sometimes get of an attraction that never came to be and Mm -hmm. you just get that little taste for it i love it or in my case i remember when you know the disney showcase um shop that's on town square yes that years ago that was uh that that was where it was basically the blue sky cellar Oh, okay. And but it wasn't called that. And that's where they had the models of coming lands, coming attractions. So a lot of what we're going to talk about in this series, I, the, we all, all the guests saw the models for these, and they were very close to being built. And then the plug got pulled. I did not know that. So, yeah, that's cool. So, so since today's episode ten of Connecting with Walt and our first installment of our Disney Neverland series falls on April first, we had to enjoy some April tomfoolery with this episode. So here is the April Fool statement for you to ponder: The Frozen Ever After Epcot attraction was Walt Disney's idea, or was it? So intrigued, Craig? Yes, I'm so intrigued that uh, hopefully I'll remember to go in and put like dun 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 music right in there. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Yes. Okay. So let's begin our story in today's Epcot World Showcase. There are 11 countries or pavilions circling the World Showcase promenade with room for six to eight additional pavilions. So when Epcot was constructed, or I should say Epcot Center, the plan was for each country or a corporation to sponsor their pavilion for the first 10 years with the hope they would extend their sponsorship after seeing their investment paid back with an increase in tourism to their countries or for corporate sponsors, increased goodwill for their company and an increase in sales for their products. The Norway Pavilion opened 
in July 1988 and was the last pavilion added to the World Showcase. And that is where we'll continue our story. Most guests would agree this pavilion was in desperate need of updating or reimagining. The Maelstrom attraction took guests on a tour in a Viking longship through Norway's history, culture, and mythology. The highlight was an encounter with trolls before your longship went backwards down a waterfall, and upon exiting the attraction, guests could watch a six-minute tourism film, The Spirit of Norway. And it's my understanding that most guests Yes, uh, a a lot of people skip the film. So I can remember, I I know I've watched it at least once, and shame on me for not watching it whenever I knew it was going to uh, close down and not getting a better memory of it. But I I can remember being a kid and and not having that option of being able to just walk right through. Uh, And then it did kind of progress to people started realizing that they could just push on the doors and leave (laughs) if they wanted to. And then that led into Disney just flat out leaving the doors open and inviting people to walk through and just completely skip it, which, you know, that's on the one hand that was nice of them to do and realize that it might not be for all guests, but at the same time too, uh, you're there to learn well, not everyone. You should be there to learn about the culture uh, of these countries and these these lands, and to skip something like a film that might not as resonate with you. That's it's it's just a bummer. But I guess we don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a strong memory of the film either. I know I've saw it a couple of times. I do remember the attraction. Yeah, the and- the film's very poorly produced. Honestly, I'm sure it's up on uh, YouTube somewhere, and not not from us, obviously. But if someone else put it up, a good copy of it, I'll have to attach a link to it in our show notes. Uh, it just it was definitely on the cheesy side. Uh, as a lot of these videos are that are representing the countries. I mean, in my personal opinion, Canada's is okay. Uh, France's is completely outdated but beautiful. Mm-hmm. I've never really been able to get into China's 360. Uh, something about that just... I, I've never really connected with it. But uh, Norway, yeah, that I would say that in terms of the pavilion as a whole, that was definitely the the low point for it was the film. The ride was absolutely beloved, uh, mm-hmm. considering it was only one of two attractions in the World Showcase. Uh, it Attractions meaning something besides a movie, having the actual boat ride aspect to it, and then having the uniqueness of being able to go backwards. And yes. uh, some of the most quotable lines in that attraction too and uh you know us diehard disney fans we like we like getting a hold of a a line from an attraction and using it to death (laughs) and confusing all of our non-disney fans and and maelstrom absolutely had it uh but at the same time uh you and i talked a little bit about this too it's i i I'll, i'll get into it later but um it, you could kind of see how it was time to go. You know, other parts, other aspects of the entire pavilion as a whole, like uh, like uh, Restaurant Akershus and uh, Kringla Bakery, still absolutely popular. And, you know, but those are also dining locations. They're not, mm-hmm. they're, they're something that uh, didn't get as much traffic, obviously, as Maelstrom did. So, uh it completely irrelevant for what we're talking about, but um, I like the bakery. That's one of my favorite yeah, it, shops. <laughs> exactly. The gift shops, people loved going in them, taking a picture by that giant troll. Everyone loves mm-hmm. going in and getting, getting a school bread. I, yes. I love Acker shoes. I think it's one of the, the best restaurants in general, not just for the princess uh, meet and greet, but also I, I do enjoy uh, the unique foods of the Norwegian culture. So um, it, it, I can definitely say that the low point of the entire pavilion was Maelstrom, in my opinion. 
Well, and that's probably why Maelstrom and the Spirit of Norway closed on October 5th, 2014. The Norwegian government had ended their sponsorship and could not be persuaded by Disney to continue their sponsorship, nor could Disney find a corporate sponsor willing to finance a reimagining or an upgrade of the pavilion's attractions. So Disney saw this as an opportunity to capitalize on the continuing popularity of their 53rd animated film, Frozen. I guess, you know, he who pays has the say. And Disney was paying. So, and there's good reason for this. Um, Frozen has earned nearly $1.3 billion in worldwide box office revenue, um, $400 million of which was earned in the United States and Canada, and $247 million um, of which was earned in Japan. It ranks as the highest-grossing animated film of all time, the third-highest-grossing original film of all time, the ninth-highest-grossing film of all time, the highest-grossing film of 2013, and the third-highest-grossing film in Japan. So with over 18 million home media sales in 2014, it became the best-selling film of the year in the United States, and by January 2015, Frozen had become the all-time best-selling Blu-ray disc in the United States. So Frozen won two Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature and Best Original Song. I bet you can't guess which one it was. Uh, <laughs> it has to be In Summer. <laughs> well, that would have been my vote, but it was Let It Go. <laughs> really? You're an In Summer fan. Hmm. I, I am. I do like that song a little. Um, (laughs) The Golden Globe Award for Best Animated Feature, the BAFTA Award for the Best Animated Film, won five Annie Awards, including the Best Animated Feature, two Grammy Awards for the Best Compilation Soundtrack for Visual Media, and Best Song Written for Visual Media. Once again, let it go. Oh, see, I would have thought that one was Fixer Upper. Yeah. Now, that's the one I really like. <laughs> and for some reason, our granddaughter likes the opening one where the, you know, it's the yeah, ice cutter. exactly. And their little song. She has us play that over and over again. I actually like that one a lot, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it won two Critics' Choice Movie Awards for the Best Animated Feature and Best Original Song, once again for Let It Go. So... Disney had learned their lesson the hard way after being unprepared for the success of 1989's The Little Mermaid. Uh, That film earned $84 million domestically during its initial release and $211 million in total lifetime gross worldwide. So The Little Mermaid, as we all know, is credited with giving life back to the Disney Animation Studios and ushering in the Disney renaissance of animation. But Disney had created very little merchandise to take advantage of the film's popularity. Uh, They were completely taken by surprise. And an attraction based on The Little Mermaid did not open in Disney California Adventure until 22 years after the film was released. Um, Tokyo Disney Sea opened Mermaid Lagoon in 2001. And that is uh, is a facade of Mermaid's Lagoon, and it's made to look like the Palace of King Triton, and features fanciful seashell-inspired architecture. Um, this port of call, which is what the theme lands are called at Tokyo Disney Sea, is unique in that it's mostly indoors and recreates the feeling of being underwater. Um, most of the attractions in this area are geared towards younger children, and this is where guests can meet the Little Mermaid characters. And they have a wonderful um, Japanese marionette show of the Little Mermaid, and hmm. it all takes place in like a dome ceiling above you. That's very so cool. So everything is larger than life. And it's remarkable because they, they, they power the, the puppets like they're riding bicycles above you. And I mean, do, it's amazing what the puppeteers are doing <sighs> to get these huge puppets created. Just giving it, me another reason to want to go to Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, I, I, would, I would think there's, there's, it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
Disney was not going to make this mistake with Frozen. So Maelstrom's closing announcement included confirmation of the rumor that this attraction would be replaced by a Frozen attraction using Maelstrom's existing water flume and longships sailing past audio-animatronic Frozen characters, recreating movie scenes set to the film's soundtrack. And it's my understanding, Craig, there was, uh, and there still is, we were talking before the show, a lot of controversy over this. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's not a surprise uh, that there was a pretty big backlash with Frozen all throughout uh, the Disney fan community. And that, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned that they weren't going to make the same mistake they did with Little Mermaid that they did with Frozen. However, in a way, they still did. Uh, Frozen came out in whatever that was, November 2012 or 2013, November 2013. 2013. Yeah. And so before it opened up, even in theaters, it was already in the parks at uh, Disneyland and California Adventure, at least because they had the scenes in World of Color, Winter Dreams, and then the meet and greet uh, over in Disneyland Park. So there there was already that presence there. And in Disney World, you know, everything just got thrown together so last second. So the movie comes out, gets bigger, 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 bigger. Still nothing's really happening. Merchandise started popping up more and more, but was selling out so rapidly. And no one could get their hands on any of it. And then before we knew it, summer was coming. And they put together the Frozen Summer Fun. Uh, and that, which I am very highly critical of, that I disliked it. I mean, the fireworks show that they showed at night uh, was awesome it it was an awesome show uh because it did such a good job of blending the music uh from frozen with pyrotechnics at hollywood studios and there's nothing quite like watching uh fireworks at hollywood studios but uh with this sing-along that is basically just watching clips of the movies with the follow the bouncing ball that just takes you back to the days of the early 90s with disney sing-along song videos (laughs) and and then the awful parade that they had which i mean i can't remember the official name that they gave it but you couldn't even call it a parade uh it it all lasted 10 minutes total just of them coming down the streets and uh the one positive aspect is that it added new floats to like our christmas parade then because they could repurpose and use them for that too but it, it was all just it just felt cheap and especially with the meet and greet uh, the temporary meet and greet that they had set up over in Norway too. It just, everything was all thrown together. And uh, so then the one time that they kind of make a conscious effort here with, with this attraction, then they couldn't just build a brand new one. They had to say, okay, well we understand that Norway, uh, this, this can kind of fit in Norway because Norway was such an inspiration for the movie itself. So we'll take this, attraction that is dated and old but beloved by so many throw on that frozen overlay and you know it ticked a lot of people off and it it still has and uh even with new new uh concept art coming out like whenever we were at d23 and we saw new concept art for the the whole area in general where the meet and greet opportunities are going to be in some of the shops it looks so beautiful and uh I I know more and more has been shown of the ride as it came out. We saw a glimpse of the ride at one point at D23. Uh, the last time I was uh, at Imagineering back in December, I got to see one of the, the cutouts, the paper cutouts of uh, one of the scenes from Frozen Ever After and just could kind of, with that glimpse, get a really good idea for for what they were going with so it all just there's a lot of promise coming and the buildings are starting to rise above the construction walls uh at epcot and in the norway section and it's all looking very intricate but there are still the people out there who are just in frozen overload and pulling their hair out over the mistake that it was to get rid of maelstrom but I mean, my whole aspect on this has kind of changed, too. I'm going to miss Maelstrom. It holds a lot of memories, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, But it's gone. It's not coming back. Why be upset with it whenever 
there is going to be a very cool ride coming in its place. Yes, it has nothing to do with the Norwegian culture, but, uh, you know, at the same time, too, it's kind of motivation. If I really ever want to go to Norway now, I'm just going to have to go do the real thing. And that's probably going to be better for me than just going to Epcot to try to experience it. Uh, <laughs> there's there's still culture in all the other pavilions. Uh, there's still culture in this pavilion, as we've talked about with with little hidden gems like, well, not so hidden gems like Kringla and some of the gift shop opportunities and Akershus and even the the Stave Church, which is filled with Frozen in the inside, but it's still just... It, you can still get that nice glimpse of the culture in it amidst all the frozen there. Yeah, I, I think uh, and after we've progressively seen the, the 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 loss of the education element in Future World, I, I it, this worries me. This precedent that it, you know it's focused on a film that has its inspiration from Norwegian art and folklore, but it's so divergent from it. If the ride had started, maybe had a little intro or something about, you know, Hans Christian Andersen and and Norwegian stories, and and then and from from the here's the Norwegian fable of you know the, the, the Snow Queen as told mm-hmm. by you know Walt Disney and Frozen. That would have been at least easier to stomach. Yeah, so it would have somehow been in keeping with trying to share uh, the country's culture with us. I mean, and I just thought, now what are they going to do? I mean, are they going to replace that film in France with Beauty and the Beast sing-along? I mean, you know, it just worries me this, what else and might do. It worries me, too, but I think this is the first step in the progress of uh, of changing Epcot. We already know it's changed so much from the Epcot of the the opening Epcot through the 80s into the early 90s. It all started to change in the, the mid-90s and start taking a turn uh, going away from its original well, what ended up being the opening. Obviously, it went way off from what it was originally <laughs> intended to be, as we've talked about uh, in so many of our past episodes. But uh, it's as more and more people depart the Disney company or get older, retire, move on, uh, the spirit of Epcot is just slowly dying. And uh, and that's, that's really sad. And hopefully at some point in time, there will be someone in the company as an executive that comes in and tries to change it or, you know, Imagineers who are really passionate to getting Epcot to be back what it used to be. Hopefully something like that comes in. Otherwise, I think this is just another uh, another peg in the board of Epcot just becoming another promotion, another cross-promotion for everything else happening in the Walt Disney Company. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It's sad for us mega fans, but for the average tourist that's come in once a year, every other year, every couple of years, maybe this is better for them in the long run. Well, it'll definitely bring new life to that pavilion yes. and long lines. Yes. <laughs> well, and you mentioned not long ago it was announced that the attraction's name would be Frozen Ever After. Uh, the attraction's backstory is described as an unforgettable adventure where you'll be whisked away for an on-the-water journey through Arendelle, an adventure set to the tune of your favorite songs from Frozen, where guests visit Arendelle during its winter-in-summer celebration. The adventure begins on the docks of Arendelle, as seen in the classic animated film, during the summer season when the residents of Arendelle are celebrating the winter festival in which Elsa uses her magical powers to make it snow on a sunny day in Arendelle, which is a fictional waterfront village based on Scandinavian architecture, geography, culture, and mythology. So Disney says. Yes. The queue is designed to be scene one. Guests will pass Wandering Oak's trading post and see Oaken peeking out from the steamed up windows of his trading post and yelling his trademark, Woohoo! <laughs> Guests climb aboard their boat and find a seat. 
and get ready for a warm hug as the lapping waters take you right into the frozen willow forest. Along the way, you'll see an ice skating Olaf and Sven helping set up for the summer festival. Soon you'll be rubbing shoulders with some boulders, which are really Kristoff's family from Troll Valley, before bracing for the cold. Grand Pabby tells the story of how Anna and Kristoff met. Then the boats ascend to find Anna, Kristoff, Sven, and Olaf together and enjoying the winter weather. High up in the icy blue world of the North Mountain, Queen Elsa's enchanting ice palace awaits. Behold the wonder of the Ice Queen making it snow, with the help of special effects and screen projections, as she sings a song you may have a passing familiarity with. And keep an eye out for a few frozen friends, too, including Marshmallow and his mini snowman friends that were first seen in the cartoon short Frozen Fever. Yes. Finally, hang on tight as you glide back down into the Bay of Arendelle and return through a cloud of mist to Arendelle, where the Summer Snow Day celebration is in full effect, and experience a fireworks finale complete with many of your favorite Frozen tunes, and a send-off from Elsa, Anna, and their friends. See, now you had me until the end. If you would have said that they would... Uh glide back down into the Bay of Arendelle where you'd find a giant oil rig, uh, <laughs> then then I'd be okay with this ride. But no, I'm, I'm back off it. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, you know, they they are going to have to have a homage to Maelstrom in here somewhere. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure the Easter eggs are going to run wild in here oh, with, yeah. with little nods to the attraction, just because well, they know how important it was to so many people. Oh, yeah. Well, somehow the trolls from Maelstrom have to be with the trolls in Troll Valley. Yeah, yeah, so. that would be cool. So the audio animatronic fi- figures will use rear projection technology that make the animated feature, fe- features of the characters look more lifelike. So similar technology has been used in the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom and Ariel's Undersea Adventure at both Magic Kingdom and Disney California Adventure. You can expect to hear for the first time in forever, do you want to build a snowman and let it go throughout the attraction, as well as other songs with slightly altered lyrics from film composers Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. But no new songs were written for this attraction. So, Craig, now that you've heard the backstory of Frozen Ever After, what are your thoughts about it being in the Norway Pavilion? Uh, I'm, you know, I, I think it sounds like a great attraction and like a lot of the criticism was, uh, leading up to it. This sounds like it would be an awesome ride if it was anywhere else other than, uh, in the place of Maelstrom. But as I kind of just said before, and my thoughts are even more secure on it now, uh, it almost in a way, I don't know if the pavilion's attraction is necessarily has to represent the country and culture uh there's a lot of other stuff in that pavilion uh, that could really show off what norway is and what that area means and you know if you if you have a ride like frozen ever after that's going to hook a lot of people in uh, I think it's almost going to do a better job at uh, getting people to maybe want to spend more time around the entire pavilion uh, and explore and wander. I, so often people will, at World Showcase, they'll walk in to a pavilion and a, a whole section and maybe go through a couple gift shops, browse around, and walk right back out. But, you know, with with something, with having that big hook in there, getting people in, uh, it, it might just even keep them in that area a little bit longer, especially if they walk out of the ride having a great time, enjoying it. Um, you know, I, I think the goal of a lot of these pavilions should be, first and foremost, to just to not represent their cultures, but get people excited to learn about their cultures and do whatever it takes to do it. And if it takes adding in a little bit of classic Disney uh, to to pull people in, then why not? Why not? 
As, as long as they balance it out with with you know learning a bit about yes that, exposing people to it, whether it's through so, food or mm-hmm. or whatever, just gen, yeah. general architecture of the area, anything that can help balance it out. Live entertainment, it's there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting to see where this will someday fit in Disneyland. Because part of the Star Wars expansion, there's also, they'll be clearing an expansion area for Fantasyland. Mm-hmm. And so, sort of waiting to hear more about that. Yes. That's, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and now at Disney California Adventure, the um, popular Aladdin the Musical, ended its run at the Hyperion Theater to be replaced this summer by a Frozen state. Um, stage musical but craig what would you say if i told you that frozen ever after was not the first attraction based on the snow queen that was planned by disney up until a couple of years ago i would have not believed it uh mm-hmm. but i i actually i was able to be a part of a couple events uh one in particular uh that explored this entire topic and i was i was shocked uh whenever they went over it so no i uh i i i do uh believe that this is not the first attraction oh good good well um well now remember frozen was released in 2013 but disney artist animator and imagineer mark davis one of walt's nine old men was working on an attraction for disneyland telling the story of our beloved snow queen back in the 1970s. So this is the story that you've heard. Yes. Um, and this Mark Davis attraction is the first in our Disney Neverland series. And this attraction is called the Enchanted Snow Palace, and that was to be built where the Fantasyland Theater next to It's a Small World is today. And it would tell the story of the Snow Queen from the story by Hans Christian Andersen. And this was the last large attraction Mark designed before his retirement from WED in 1978. And it is considered by some Imagineers to be one of the most beautiful attractions ever designed for a Disney park. Uh, The Disney Gallery in Disneyland's Town Square held an exhibit in 2015, and it was called The Snow Queen's Art of Ice. And they included in this uh, Mark Davis's conceptual artwork for the Enchanted Snow Palace, which showed how beautiful and epic this attraction would have been. Now, the story of the Snow Queen and Frozen takes place in a snow-covered land. So you may find it ironic that Mark first thought of the Enchanted Snow Palace whilst working on Disneyland's Jungle Cruise attraction. Uh, Mark was spending a remarkably hot Southern California day scouting locations along the riverways of the Jungle Cruise for some new scenes he was designing for the attraction. And Mark got to thinking how nice it would be if there was a place at Disneyland where guests could escape the hustle and bustle of the park and the heat of the day. And out of that came the idea for the Enchanted Snow Palace attraction. Based on Mark's artwork, the show building would be similar in size and scale to It's a Small World. It would be an enormous castle built out of a giant blue and white glacier. Guests in the queue would see towers, windows, and walls in all the icicles and icy peaks. And guests would then board an ice blue boat similar to the ones at It's a Small World and Pirates of the Caribbean. And these boats would be powered by water and conveyor belts, just like the boats in Small World and Pirates, and take us through an opening in the glacier and inside the show building, where everything sparkles in a dazzling dazzling blue and whiteness of the glacial landscape with Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite playing in the background. Now our boat is practically surrounded by audio animatronic arctic animals. Polar bears and penguins frolic on ice floes. Timber wolves from atop snow-covered hills howl at the moon. Playful walruses pop up next to our boat to squirt water at us. So imagine this section is sort of an Arctic jungle cruise. Now, as the northern lights of the Aurora Borealis shimmer above us in the sky, 
our boat enters a snow cavern where huge snow giants carrying icicle clubs tower above us. However, rather than noticing our boat, the snow giants are distracted by the frost fairies, like the ones in Fantasia, flittering in the air around them. Our boats glide past the Snow Queen's beautiful handmaidens, dressed lavishly in a 1930s Ziegfeld girl fashion style marked by opulent gowns made from only the finest materials who are welcoming us to the Snow Queen's realm. Every handmaiden's gown includes an elaborate headdress made from ice, and each maiden has a snowy owl, an arctic fox, or a snow-white ermine as an attendant. As the music builds, we enter the throne room of the Snow Queen, who is preparing to make her nightly rounds through her kingdom. She has a sled that is pulled by a team of snowshoe rabbits readied at the palace door. The queen gestures gracefully towards us, and the air is immediately filled with snow. Our boat takes us through this blizzard, back into the sunlight and the load-unload area of the enchanted snow palace. So, Craig, what do you think about this attraction? There are some similarities to this and Frozen Ever After. There absolutely are. Um, The one thing that uh, I... The the one thing I take away from this, so uh, as you mentioned, you had the uh, the exhibit of it in 2015 at Town Square, uh, but I got to see this in November of 2014 uh, during Destination D, uh, mm-hmm. the D23 event that we had hosted at Walt Disney World. So one of the uh, one of the presentations that happened uh, was by uh, Walt Disney Archives director Becky Klein. And she kind of, she had this little presentation slideshow uh, with some music, not music that they were working on or anything, but just uh, they, they showed all of Mark's, um, they showed all of Mark's concept art with a little bit of music explaining everything that was happening and talking about how the Imagineers took the inspiration for, frozen ever after from a lot of this concept art and uh i there's one cool part about it that they gave us this little uh contraption that we put on our phone and we'd be able to access uh the concept art and a special video i'll have to see if that still works um because if it does i might be able to uh to attach it somehow in the show notes and get it out there for other people to see. If not, I apologize, but the the concept art, uh, you did a great job of describing it. I think the, the one thing to really take away from it though, and some of this concept art is easy to find out there, but there's a lot of whimsy to it. So you mentioned the animals, but there's a ridiculous side to it. Like there's there a penguin orchestra being led by a seal and uh, just that classic Mark Davis humor mm-hmm. that yeah. that we all know and love him for took place in here. So, uh, and that's something that it's hard to kind of, in my opinion, to even try to think of like how Mark Davis would t- put his take on Frozen because it's two very different styles. But uh, no, they, that's. I think the Snow Queen ride that he started working on. I think that would have been something spectacular. Uh, do, do you think it would have had the longevity? Because, you know, it is, it is, it's, it's beautiful, it's scenes, and it's very elaborate, but it's a very passive ride, it has a weak storyline. I mean, do you think it could have become a favorite like Pirates and Haunted Mansion, or, you know, eventually fade in popularity like the Mind Train Through Nature's Wonderland and America Sing? I mean, that almost brings up another question, though, of at the time, popularity might have faded for something like Mind Train through Wonderland, uh, Nature's Wonderland. But I, I know there's a whole, just, there's a giant group of us massive Disney fans out there who would give anything to be able to experience Mind Train through Nature's Wonderland. And, you know, some of these decisions, they might have been made at the time, but some of these attractions might have turned around. I don't I don't know where this attraction would have ended up on it. I want to say that it would have been a Pirates, uh, based on just, again, Mark Davis's 
absolutely great humor in everything he does, as well as uh, the concept art that is out there. I, I feel like it would have ended up like a Pirates, but, um, you know, I'm also not an Imagineer, so you're, my guess is as good as anyone else's. Yeah, yeah. But I agree. I mean, the reason that Walt um, brought Mark from Animation Imagineering was because he could add a comical side, like you were saying, yeah. and a whimsical side to attractions. And Mark also it, it could easily capture a whole story and convey a whole story and emotions in in a face, in a gesture, and all that. And it was that a lot of the other uh, animators and Imagineers, as brilliant as they were, just couldn't do it the way Mark could. Yeah. And that was sort of his brilliance of, of his work. Yeah. So what do you think? I, I, I would like to think it would have um, lasted, but I'm, you know, I'm worried now with it. You know, and then I'm thinking, you know, they went to more interactive for a long time. That was the most popular yeah. thing. But then I think, well, Little Mermaid and is, is a traditional attraction, and it is very popular. Uh, um, so I don't know. I, I think it could have held up. Yeah, well, you so. even, okay, let's say it actually was built. Who knows if Frozen would have ever happened? I mean, yeah, especially it, in this incarnation. Well, yeah, it's, with the popularity of taking uh, taking these rides and making them into live action films, maybe Frozen would have, if this ride would have been around and popular, maybe it would have debuted as a live action movie and not mm-hmm. the animated movie. And I mean, there's just so many there's so many ways to take yeah. this. A lot of the scenes remind me of um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. so, why was the Enchanted Snow Palace not built and instead became our first attraction in our Disneyland Neverland series? Well, we need to remember this was the mid-1970s, and amusement park owners were beginning to discover how the addition of steel track roller coasters increased the number of visitors and profits to their parks, and that included Disney executives. The 1975 opening of Space Mountain in the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World had such a significant impact on attendance that the company immediately began building a version for Disneyland, which opened in 1977. The focus and funds for WED were now on adding more thrill-type attractions to the parks. So the estimated $15 million it would have taken to build Mark Davis's beautiful, relaxing, enchanted snow palace could not be justified so now we've traced the roots of epcot's frozen ever after attraction from the film frozen and back to the concept for disneyland's the enchanted snow palace however i made the claim that this attraction could be connected with walt so mark davis created the enchanted snow palace approximately 10 years after Walt's passing. So we'll have to look back even further in Disney history. So let's get into our Disney Wayback Machine and travel back to the early years of the Walt Disney Studio. Sounds good. Walt read a great many books on on stories, art, history, and design for inspiration on his films. And Walt got a number of ideas from the stories of Hans Christian Andersen. One of Walt's most successful cartoon shorts came from Andersen's The Ugly Duckling. There were a number of striking similarities between Walt Disney and Hans Christian Andersen. Both men rose from poverty and obscurity to wealth and fame through their storytelling abilities. Both men had to overcome naturally introverted natures and learn to charm audiences. And both created remarkable bodies of work that continue to speak to children and adults. So Walt began considering Anderson's tale of the Snow Queen as an animated subject. So when the Snow Queen initially appears in this tale, she is described as being a woman dressed in garments of white gauze, which looked like millions of starry snowflakes linked together. She was fair and beautiful, but made of ice shining and glittering ice. Still she was alive and her eyes sparkled like bright stars, but there was neither peace nor rest in their glance. 
Anderson's tale of the Snow Queen begins with a magical mirror created by the devil that has the power to make people look at the ugly side of others. When a devil tries to bring it to heaven, it falls and breaks in the shards, which eventually pierce people's hearts and fills them with contempt. Years later, a boy named Kai and a girl named Gerda become good friends. But soon, one of the shards finds its way into Kai or Kay's heart, and he changes like the others. One day, he goes out and ends up being lured away by the Snow Queen whilst playing on his sled. Greta, knowing the legend of the Snow Queen, sets out on a dangerous quest to rescue him and eventually thaw his icy heart. Gerda battles witchcraft, murderous robbers, hunger, and extreme cold to reach Kay, who is imprisoned inside the Snow Queen's Palace of Ice. But in the end, there is no climactic showdown between Gerda and the Snow Queen. When Gerda arrives at the palace, the Snow Queen is nowhere to be found. She has traveled south to Italy, (laughs) where she plans to shower snow down upon Mount Vesuvius and Mount Etna. Kai and Gerda stroll out of that enormous palace, and the stories end. And a few paragraphs later, they are safely back at home in Denmark. So there's quite a bit of difference between the, the original Snow Queen story and what we know in Frozen. Yeah, just just a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. So Disney's studio artists claimed that Anderson's villainous Snow Queen did not lend herself to a film adaptation, and they would be forced to completely reworking the, pli- the plot. Huh. So the studio worked on other Anderson stories, including The Emperor's New Clothes, The Emperor's Nightingale, The Little Fir Tree, The Steadfast Tin Soldier, and The Little Mermaid. However, the obstacle Walt and the Disney artist faced with many of Anderson's stories was they had unhappy endings for their title characters. For example, The Little Fir Tree finally achieves its goal of becoming a Christmas tree, only to be discarded and burned with the moral of the story being a warning against worldly vanity. In a steadfast tin soldier, the tin soldier burns in a furnace as his beloved paper ballerina catches fire. Even the Little Mermaid story of Christian's sacrifice ends bleakly with the mermaid's death. So many of these stories were developed as part of an ambitious project of Walt's, to produce a combination live-action and animated biography of Hans Christian Andersen. So discussions for either a biographical film or a feature-length collection of Andersen stories began before Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was released in 1937. So discussions about the project continued on and off for more than a year as the Disney artists and storymen researched Andersen's life and work. So Disney registered the titles The Story of Hans Christian Andersen and Tales of Hans Christian Andersen with the Hayes Office in December 1939. And at this time, the Hayes Office enforced a code of film standards. The office asked filmmakers to provide them with plots of films they were planning to be, to be reviewed to ensure they were in compliance with these standards. Samuel Goldwyn Incorporated had already registered The Life of Hans Christian Andersen and asked Walt Disney to withdraw the story of Hans Christian Andersen's title, which Walt did. Despite the assumption both studios were working on similar films, the Walt Disney Studio continued to work on two scripts and preliminary artwork for the Andersen film. So in March 1940, Walt Disney had the idea of co-producing the film with his studio providing the animation and Goldwyn providing the live action. And after much correspondence between the two studio executives, Goldwyn sent Walt early drafts of three scripts his writers had prepared. Walt and the Disney artists reviewed the scripts, and they expressed some concern that one script did not portray Anderson's life accurately, and the other two focused exclusively on Anderson's stay in a Copenhagen bordello. 
Um, Walt and his artists believed Anderson should be portrayed as a likable, sincere, and interesting character throughout. Since no final agreement had been signed with Goldwyn, Walt temporarily suspended the deal. However, the Disney artists and writers continued to develop story ideas and work continued despite the increasing demands and challenges caused by World War II. In April 1942, Disney presented their preliminary storyboards to Goldwyn and his staff. They were enthusiastic about what they saw. So on September 17, 1943, nearly a year and a half later, an item in The Hollywood Reporter stated, Samuel Goldwyn and Walt Disney announced yesterday that the Disney organization will do an animated sequence of Up in Arms. The sequence is already in work and will be presented as part of the climax of the film. They suspended work on their jointly produced feature, The Life of Hans Christian Andersen, at the outbreak of the war, so that Disney could devote more of his time to production of films identified with the war effort and international relations. It is still on the Goldwyn Disney agenda to be completed after the war. That same day, Luella Parsons reported in her syndicated column, Remembering the plans Disney and Goldwyn had to film the life of Hans Christian Andersen, I asked Sam, Samuel Goldwyn, what had happened. He said, Walt has been so tied up with war films that the Andersen biography has been temporarily shelved. Luella continued, Personally, I hope it will be made soon. We could do with a few movies of that type. But, but probably not of the life in the bordello type. Well, that's the most interesting, <laughs> in my opinion. But <laughs> I'm sure. Um, Disney did produce about 80 seconds of animation for the Danny Kaye musical Up in Arms that was released in 1944. The sequence was directed by Ub Iwerks and featured a group of characters called the Weavy Weavies. It is unclear if the final version ever made it into the film. It is not included in the existing versions of the film, and reviewers at the time don't mention the animation. In 1942, 12 years after the discussions of a Disney-Goldwyn co-production began, RKO released the live-action musical biography Hans Christian Andersen, starring Danny Kaye. Instead of animated sequences, Goldwyn's Hans Christian Andersen from 1952 told the author's fairy tales through choreographed balletic dances numbers. It was nominated for a handful of Academy Awards and won none. And the Snow Queen section, which had originally sparked Walt's interest, was ultimately not included. It was one of the last pictures Goldwyn personally produced. Film historians have noted that his commitment to the project led Goldwyn to pay an inordinate sum to get the script he wanted. The feeling amongst Disney artists was that Walt let Goldwyn get away from him. So, have you ever seen this, the Danny Kaye version of Hans Christian Andersen? I didn't. I actually didn't even know it existed until uh, we just did this. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it as a boy. They once showed it to us in school, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It, it was a musical, and uh, and then uh, there was on Fridays for a while uh, they they would show every week. I don't remember which network. I mean, there were only three at the time. They would show family films, and and it was like they'd show The Wizard of Oz. They would show Lily, um, and they showed Hans Christian Andersen. So it had a good run for a while on television. Hmm. Yeah, it's actually uh, it's available to buy relatively cheap in rent on Amazon, so I might have to do it. I do enjoy Danny Kaye, so... And yeah. it doesn't look... Well, I just pulled up a clip of it on TCM on accident. Uh, but, no, it doesn't look like it's going to be on there at any point soon, so I'm going to have to, to rent it at some point. Yeah, yeah, let me know what you think. I have fond memories of it, but, you know, I was nine years old. It's Danny Kaye. So. It's got to hold up. Yeah, yeah. So Now, despite their planned co-production of the Anderson film being shelved, the friendship between Goldwyn and Disney remains strong. Um, Goldwyn assisted Disney in the completion of his challenging Song of the South project a few years later. 
Walt's idea in 1943 to make an animated film from Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen was fulfilled 70 years later with the release of Frozen in 2013, which led to the, the design and construction of Frozen Ever After. So, Craig, we are at the end of our story. So now I pose the question to you and to our listeners. Is it an April Fool fact or fiction that the Frozen Ever After Epcot attraction was Walt Disney's idea? Did I connect it with Walt? Uh, um, you know, I'm going to go with the uh, the Imagineering saying that no good idea ever truly dies. So um, I, I'm sure, obviously, at some point in time, Walt had to have brought this up to and, and kept this idea going, even if it was in the back of his head on the on a shelf somewhere so yeah I, i'm gonna say fact okay. that yeah okay well i i tend to agree we also know that a lot of uh, several of the films that were produced during the the disney renaissance like little mermaid and beauty and the beast they were started uh before world war ii yeah. And were on the drawing boards, and they were actively working on them. And Little Mermaid got shelved uh, just because of the war, and and it, there was that problematic ending. Yeah. I, I mean, fairy tales. You know, the grim fairy tales are really grim. Yes, and and um, the Anderson fairy tales they were all little moral, moral morality plays for children, and there were deep lessons to be learned, and so th- their endings are pretty rough. But, um, but you know, Beauty and the Beast was another one. That went through so many iterations until the one we know finally came. But that started with Walt's time yeah. as well. So, so yeah, so, um, so ideas that were Walt's and the, the nine old men, they're still making their way to, to theaters and theme parks today. I'm sure we'll see more and more and more and... You know, even maybe I'm crazy whenever I say this, but maybe even uh, grimmer versions of some of these uh, classics uh, fairy tales that they didn't get the treatment the first time around to to go with the more happy ending approach. Uh, That's obviously popular and worked for Disney for a lot of time. But uh, who knows? Maybe maybe they'll expand or go a completely uh, different route. So. Because obviously these stories are adapted and expanded by other uh, people out there in their own creative ways. Like in terms of the Little Mermaid, uh, I love I love the Little Mermaid, uh, our Disney version. But my favorite take on the whole Little Mermaid tale is actually uh, uh, Studio Ghibli's uh, Miyazaki's version of it with Ponyo. Um, mm-hmm. I just his animation is second to none and. Uh, I, I like the different idea on the storytelling with that too. So, uh, you know, who, who knows what the future holds in terms for all yeah. of us. And and all of these fairy tales, when you read about their history, they were first told orally, and they went through many iterations. And some were changed um, as the generations changed yeah. and as children changed, and. And um, the only reason, like, some are associated with Grimm is because they were the first ones to write them down. Yeah. There are many versions of Cinderella in different cultures. Yes. There's several versions of Snow White in different cultures. So um, we, we just know now the European version. Exactly. But there are others even in, in Chinese culture and all that that are very similar yeah. to the European versions. That they're der- and they're, the European ones are derived in some cases from the Eastern. I know. It's a great point. Great point. Mm-hmm. So, so many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including the Disney that never was, the stories and art from five decades of unproduced animation by Charles Solomon, and Epcot's World Showcase. A Pavilion by Pavilion Guide by Rick Killingsworth and Cassie Novak. And 
Craig, do you remember theme park designer Dave Younger, who was on episode 9 of Connecting with Walt back on January 29th? Uh, yes, I do. I, I believe we. I was there for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I remember how excited you were about David's book coming oh, out. Oh, absolutely. And you'll be happy to know that David is now taking pre-orders for his book, Theme Park Design and the Art of theme- Themed Entertainment. And you can order that at themeparkdesignbook.com. And it will be, it's actually already in worldwide release. It went out on March 28th. Um, the book will initially be sold exclusively through the book website before becoming available from bookstores and Amazon in late April. And we'll have a link to David's website in the show notes for episode nine. Yes. So if you want to sort of refresh your memory, if you haven't listened to it yet, you want to go back to episode nine and um, learn. It was I found it fascinating about what goes into designing even the most minutest of details. Oh, absolutely! Is our favorite theme parks one of our best episodes that we've uh, we've done? I think so. And it's not just on Disney; he, it's on uh, Universal Parks, uh, some of the international parks, as as well as Disney parks. Yeah. So, so Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners hear your golden? Uh, of course, you can find me on uh, my my show. Uh, the Diz Unplugged Universal Edition, as well as the uh, the other ones that I'm on, like uh, this one and uh, the Diz Unplugged Disney World Edition that I produce. And uh, uh, who knows? At this point, we're recording this not like literally the day before this comes out. For all I know, there might be six new things that we end up putting into place before this even releases. So, yes, we we are recording this well yes. in advance. For, for once. But I am all over the place. You will have no problem finding me, uh, as always. Just, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter, at Teleclaster. That's the, the best place to keep track of my antics and shenanigans and everything I do. So follow me on there. Great. And you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata-Willie, and Tony Spatel. We have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all. And all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, that's one of my beats, and even more Disney history. Um, Listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, although some Walt Disney World gets pulled into that as well, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at... Where is that at? Disunplug.com, home of uh, all of our show notes. And uh, Mm -hmm. still working hard at trying to organize everything better and better. But it's all coming along, I I promise. And and our YouTube channels. Oh, yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, YouTube. YouTube.com slash Disunplugged. And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. I'm on Twitter at mbowling121. Uh, Facebook, just Michael Bowling. And Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So join us next time on episode 11 of Connecting with Walt, titled Disney Legends Who Built Walt Disney World. Joe Potter, Joe Fowler, and Richard Irvine. And those three names sound familiar to anybody who sailed over to Magic Kingdom. Yes, and if you've never done that before uh, and you are adamant about taking the monorail, uh, please go go ride uh, the, the floating crafts uh, and do a little bit of research before this next one. So thank you, Craig, and thank you, our listeners, for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy.